0: Cult. Because the message tonight is on the Ten Commandments. Now, any of you that was raised in probably a mainline church that went through some type of catechism, etc., you guys could probably name a good chunk of the Ten Commandments there, maybe even name them in order. One of my favorite Ten Commandments stories in my life is this I was not raised in a mainline church, so therefore I did not go through catechism or anything, but I had a lot of friends that did. But for some reason, I had a pencil. ...that had the Ten Commandments on it. I don't know where I got it, I don't remember anything about it... ...but I had a pencil with the Ten Commandments on it. So all my friends that were going through catechism... ...had to know the Ten Commandments, had to know them in order. So every time they went through the test, they asked to borrow my pencil. And so therefore, they took the test with my pencil... ...and once they got done, they would hand it back to me... ...and I would just give it to the next Lutheran... ...or something along that type of line. So I helped many people get confirmed... ...through cheating with my Ten Commandments pencil... So, I don't know which one of the Ten Commandments that broke, but that's just a true story that I wanted to share with you. Ten Commandments are pretty easy to talk about because they're actually pretty straightforward. The problem that we run into when talking about the Ten Commandments is trying to take them and apply them into what we're doing today. And this is where the real problem starts to be. So, let's just get some stuff out here in the open. First off, of the Ten Commandments, nine of them nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. So right off the bat, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And and I printed this off because it kind of goes into the detail here. Commandment number one, you know, to worship the Lord God only, that's repeated about 50 times in the New Testament. Idolatry, about 12 times. Not taking the Lord's name in vain, about four times. We can go down the list here, honoring parents six times, etc. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The one commandment that is not repeated in the New Testament is honor the Sabbath, which we will get to that one when we get to that point. But before we understand these Ten Commandments, we need to understand what Jesus thinks about the commandments and about the law. Anytime you want to know what the Bible thinks, I remember hearing this years ago from Jim, and I don't know if he came up with it himself or somebody else, but he always used to say, let the Bible be its own commentary. With that being said, what does Christ himself think of the law? Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, then one of them a lawyer, asking him a question, testing him, and saying, verse 36, Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these the two commandments hang, all the law and prophets. And it's kind of interesting because if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with you in your relationship with God. And the last six deal with you in your relationship with others. It's kind of what Jesus just said there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And these Ten Commandments, if we would really just apply them to our lives and really make this the rule, how much better would everything be? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It's kind of interesting. It's been said many times before that if you add up all the rules in the law, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc., there's 613 rules that God has asked you to obey. But yet, these Ten Commandments are what he starts out with. These Ten Commandments are the foundation of what a moral society is supposed to look like and also a spiritual society that's focused on the Lord. So with that being said, let's just jump right into this. Exodus chapter 20. We left off last week in Exodus 19 that Moses went up to the mountain. We talked about going to the mountain, represented that relationship with the Lord. And the people had to wash themselves, had to clean themselves, had to do all this stuff. And how really through Christ we're washed, we're clean. That's how we can approach God. They couldn't approach God that way in the Old Testament, but we can approach God through Jesus Christ. So God here is deciding to speak to Moses. And as he's speaking to Moses, these are the Ten Commandments that he gives. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. First one, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. God is God. There's none other. There's none. That's the thing. We, We lose this concept. When we say we're Christians... That means we're following Christ, and as following Christ, we believe there is one God, and one God alone. So that means as a Christian, I cannot believe that the Muslims are right, that the Buddhists are right, and that the Hindus are right. I can't. Because if I believe that the Muslims are right, and the Buddhists are right, and the Hindus are right, or any other religion is right, I'm already breaking the first commandment. There's only one God, and I don't believe that our God goes by different names and different approaches through different religions. It is the God of the Old Testament, it is the God of the New Testament, and there is no other gods before me. That's just straight forward. God is God. Now, if you can't get number one, there's no reason to go to two, three, four, five. This is why the Lord starts out with this. Now, he could have started out with the softball one. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, we can all agree with that. Then build up to the whole God is God. He starts right from the beginning to make sure it's abundantly clear to you. He is the Lord and there's nobody else. So that's the first commandment. God is God. There's none other. Next one. You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that in the earth below or is that in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. No carved image. Don't go in and make your own idols. I mean, that's a pretty simple, straightforward thing. No other gods. Don't make idols. Okay, I don't think we have any problems here yet. I don't believe any of you have a little carved image at home on your fireplace. I don't think any of you carry a little idol in your pocket. But what we run into is this. We have created little idols that just no longer are carved statue. It's kind of interesting that back during the Bible times, they had names for false gods. One of them was Mammon, the god of money. There was another god that was the god of Molech, which was the god of uh, prosperity and success. You know, and there was also gods, you could go down the list, there was gods of debauchery and drunkenness, etc., Now, we don't call them Moloch. We don't call them Mammon anymore. What we usually call the god of money is overtime. That's our god now. There's no longer a statue. It comes in the form of a little paycheck every two weeks. We don't have a god called Moloch that we can bow down and worship to, but we have this prosperity that basically says, I will sacrifice every relationship I have to be successful in life. I was studying up this, and I was reading about the god of Moloch, and I have never heard this before. But supposedly what they used to do is that if you were a a business owner back during the time and you worshiped Moloch, what you would do is take your firstborn child and actually bury them alive in the wall of your business to show that you are willing to sacrifice everything for your business with the understanding that your child would not die, your child's spirit would just come into your secondborn. Now That just sounds crazy, right? But all of you sitting here tonight know somebody over the years that have buried their children in their business. And they think they're doing the right thing. And we don't have the God, I can't remember what the Roman God of uh, alcoholism was. But, you know, we just call it now good times, parties, you know, fill in the blank. So we don't have carved images that we bow down and worship. We don't call those things by those names anymore. But those gods are still there. They still exist. And to an extent, we still worship them. We don't worship them by kneeling down. We don't worship them by singing songs about them or praising them. But in our actions, we worship them because that is what we say is important. So we have to be careful that we're not making a God. We're not making a carved image in our life. Because those things will come back. And that's what it's saying here in verse 5. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, that sounds rough. No, what he's really saying is this. If you choose to break these commandments, and you choose to go this route, guess what? It's not only going to affect you. It's going to affect the generation behind you, and the generation behind them, and the generation behind them. That's what God is trying to say. The choices I make right now are going to affect my kids. And then when my kids have kids, it's going to affect how they raise their kids. We have this crazy concept that as believers, we live in this little bubble that nothing affects other people. My sin is my sin. No, my sin goes out and it creates this awful web that will affect my children, my spouse, and the body of Christ. So this is what he's saying. It will go down to generations to generations. And when it says that I'm a jealous God, don't misunderstand that. This is not God saying I'm jealous Like, I don't have a lot of uh, self-esteem, so if you make a carved image of somebody else, that's really going to hurt my feelings. He's God. He knows He's God. He's not worried about that. What this literally means is, I'm jealous for you. I am jealous for you. I love you so much, I want to protect you. I want to be jealous for you. He's not worried about His glory. He's worried about us. I'm jealous for my children. I want what's best for them. I want to protect them. I want to keep a hand of the Lord upon them. It's not that if I see my child talking to someone else, it's like, oh, I hope he doesn't think he's a better dad than me. No, I'm jealous for my children. I want what's best for them. God is jealous for us. He looks at us as a loving Heavenly Father. The Bible actually uses this analogy that he's like a, a, a bird bringing its young under his wings. He wants to keep us safe. He wants to keep us protected. So as we go through these, these rules, these commandments, these guidelines are here to say this is what will keep you safe. If you follow these ten rules, guess what? A lot of problems are going to go right out the window. Can you imagine if as a society, as a family, as an individual, I would stop and say, okay, Lord, no other God, just you. I'm not going to be worshiping any of these other false deities, but even more so, I'm not going to worship other things in my life. I'm not going to allow anything to get into my life. Just be careful on that. What about next one, number three? You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I remember when I first got saved. So I got saved. I knew not to take the Lord's name in vain. And I'm around all these other believers. And as I'm talking to these other Christians, I hear them take the Lord's name in vain all the time. So I went up to somebody. I was, you know, 16, 17 at the time, and I went up to somebody at church out here that I really respected. And I said, I don't don't get this. If God says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, why do so many other believers still say it? They didn't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer. Sometimes I'm around believers that truly love Jesus Christ, and and I have no doubt in my mind, and I listen to them, I hear them talk, and they take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know what to say to that. I don't get it. Sometimes it is what we're used to. Maybe that's the way we spoke. Richard always tells this about his testimony. He says that when he got saved, how difficult it was to give up cursing because he used to look at cursing as an art form. You know, what was the best way to combine words, you know? But commandment number three is pretty straightforward. When it says, do not take the name of your Lord, your God, in vain, some of your sayings, do not misuse it, do not make it empty. God's name is so powerful. When Jesus was in the garden and they came to him and said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said, I am. When he said, I am, all the soldiers got knocked down. Because that was the name of God. But yet we have come to this idea that we just throw out the name of God anytime we want. And I remember hearing the first time I heard a teaching on this saying it's not just taking the Lord's name in vain. It's also just using the name of the Lord so much that it becomes empty to you. That really started hitting me. We've got to be careful that we don't let the names Jesus and Christ and God and Lord just become fillers in our normal everyday vocabulary. Because then those words can become quite empty. They become quite meaningless. You know, it's just fascinating how Satan has allowed this one to creep in. You know, as the joke goes, you know, when you hit your thumb with the hammer, you don't scream out, Hare Krishna. You know, you don't. Even atheists say the name Jesus more than some believers. It's become such a thing to just disparage the name of God. But you know what Philippians tells me? In the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. There's going to come a time and place where the name of Christ becomes so powerful, so amazing, that we'll fully understand what his name means, what his name represents. Now, those are the first three that really deal with our relationship with the Lord. Some people describe those commandments as the vertical ones, going up and down between the Lord. Sabbath falls under that, but we'll get to that one in a second. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about the first three? Pretty straightforward, pretty good ones there. Okay, next one. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And that you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rest the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Bless this is one that creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? I still remember Maul Engels getting upset at Paul. Remember that? He went out on the Sabbath. He skipped church because he was tired. She came home from church and he was out there working ground. Do you remember that? You guys don't care. Little House on the Prairie, Maul Engels got angry. Because you don't do that. How dare Paul sleep in, skip church, and decide to go work ground. It's amazing how this mindset still applies to us today. This idea of the Sabbath. This is the only one not repeated in the New Testament. Go with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. Let's see what Jesus says about the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2. If you're a note taker, you can write down Colossians 2 verse 16. Colossians 2 verse 16. In Colossians 2 it says, Let no one judge you in Sabbaths. That's an interesting passage. Because there is such an emphasis on the Sabbath... That for Paul to say, don't let anybody judge you on Sabbaths. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, as we read here in Jesus, the purpose of the Sabbath was to give you a day of rest. It was to give you. God didn't need to take a break. It wasn't after six days of creating the world that the Lord was tired. He set the example for us to follow. But now, in our Puritan American work ethic, you work seven days a week. You work as many hours as you can. And then we wonder why there's a fundamental fall in the family. Because we're going to work every hour we can. Because that is what a real man, that's what a real woman would do. Actually, the Bible says, you know what, it's really good to take a day off. Look here at Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now, it happened that he, meaning Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, you will not find a rule in the law that says that's wrong. What they were doing, and anybody that's been around here, you go into the wheat field, you take the head of wheat off, you rub it together, you get the seeds, you throw them in your mouth. That's what they were doing. It's not against the law. But the problem was that they had added so many things to the law that that was considered harvesting grain. So they looked at that as harvesting. If you would take a a head of wheat and rub it and eat the the seeds, you had just harvested grain. You had just broken the Sabbath. You worked. Verse 25, But he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and he and those with him? That he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest?" and also gave some to those who were with him? He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is trying to say here is, The Sabbath was created for us, to be a day of rest and a blessing to us. It was never created to become this legalistic burden, that we had to carry. And that's what happened. God's simplistic idea of, Hey, take one day off a week. In fact, everybody... Take a day off a week. Even the slaves take a day off a week. Turned into this religious, legalistic thing. Now, the problem is some people want to still bring that into today's society. And I, Colossians says, let no one judge you. Jesus right here is saying, hey, guys, Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest. He goes, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath, so I'm allowed to tell you what to do. I still think it's important to take a day off. Now, for some reason, we have come to this idea that we believe the Sabbath is on Sundays. If you're going to really look at it from a Jewish perspective, the Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Now, when people say, well, I don't think people should work on Sunday, I always tell you this. Guess what? I work every Sunday. So, I mean, you don't want me to show up. Maybe some of you are saying amen. I don't know. I work on Sundays. A lot of you go to church and you go out to eat. Your waitresses work on Sundays. You run through Walmart on the way home. They're working on Sundays. If you have an ER visit, well, you're glad that they're working Sundays. The purpose of the Sabbath is to remind you, take a day to rest. And, and, and it's not a day to just say, good, I'm going to get all this done. It's supposed to be a day of mental, spiritual, and physical rest, of where you spend that time with the Lord also. And maybe it's the day where you say, you know, I can spend some extra time in prayer. I can spend some extra time in the Word. Yeah, I can get some stuff done around the house. Or I can spend this time with the kids. You know, for me, my Sabbath is sundown Thursday to Friday. Usually Thursday evenings, about 6.30, I shut the phone off, and I turn it back on Saturday morning. Because that's what works for me. I take Fridays as a family day. And it's a balance for me because usually what I want to do on Friday is get as much stuff done as I can around the house. Because I've been working the other six days. Well, you know what happens to my boys on Friday? Dad, it's family day. Which to them, family day means that I'm just a rag doll that I do whatever they want, you know? The Lord said it's supposed to be a day of rest. And that's something that I'm trying to learn and I'm trying to realize that I feel like I would accomplish a lot. If I'd get my little checklist done on Friday. And really the Lord says, it's supposed to be at about a time of refreshing. It's supposed to be at a time of resting. It's supposed to be a time of spiritually just saying, Lord, I have a day that I can spend with you. Just be careful that you don't fall into the trap of you're a real man by working seven days a week. That's never what the Lord intended in any way whatsoever. And it's a blessing to you, to your family, to those that are around to take that day and say... Lord, this is what you have ordained. I heard a pastor say one time how arrogant and how ignorant of us to think that we don't need a day of rest when God commanded us to do it. We think we're super special. I don't need this. God says you do. And I don't know when your Sabbath is, but I encourage you to find a day throughout the week and let that be a blessing to you and to those that are around you. So those kind of deal with the spiritual relationship here with the Lord. Now, moving on with them, some of these get a little more straightforward. Pick up the pace a little bit. Verse 12, number five Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You know, according to Ephesians 6, this is the first commandment with the promise. Kids, if you're in here, actually, the Lord worked this out because uh, Jonathan's not here tonight, so I got the teens in here. Ha ha. You know, so this passage is saying honor your mother, honor your father, and the blessing of that is that your obedience to them is really an obedience to the Lord and that God will then bless you in the land. Now, my rule out here is pretty simple. Over the years, I've gotten many phone calls from kids that still live at home, and they're like, well, Pastor, what do you think? I think I should do this. My parents think I should do this. And my response is always this. Unless your parents are asking you to do something unbiblical, you need to obey. You need to trust that they're the authority of the house. You need to trust that that's the system that God set up, and that's the system that God ordained. And by honoring them, and this is repeated again in Ephesians chapter 6, by honoring them, you're really honoring the Lord. And if you feel that what they're asking you to do is not right or is wrong, then you can go to them and say, can we pray about this? And if you don't have believing parents, then sometimes you have to understand that that respect and submission, as long as they're not asking you to do something unbiblical or sinful, the Lord is saying, honor that. Now, that may be difficult. But God says, guys, if you do that, I promise you, you'll be blessed. What a great simple commandment that is. How about the next one, verse 13? Uh, Number six, you shall not murder... Pretty straightforward. Can you look at Matthew five, please? Keep your hand there in Matthew. We have two references in Matthew five. Thou shall not murder. Jesus decided to add this to this one. You may be thinking finally, the first one I've not screwed up on. Well, look at what Jesus' definition of murder is in Matthew five, verse twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that means fool, it literally means empty-headed, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will have by no means get out, till you have paid the last penny. Now listen, we may not have committed murder, but how many of us have gotten so angry with somebody in our heart? We've committed murder in our heart. We're all guilty of that. See, Jesus said, listen, it's not just about obeying on the outside, it's about obeying on the inside. I've used this example before. I can make my boys be completely obedient to me. I could follow them around with a switch or a spoon all day and say, if you do one thing... Okay, I have obedience, right? Yeah, I have obedience, but I don't have the heart. See, God says, I want your heart. Okay, so fine. You're not out killing those people that you're angry with. Good. You passed one of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, how's your heart towards them? No one may ever be able to tell from the outside, but between you and the Lord and your Holy Spirit, are you harboring anger at somebody? Are you in your mind saying, Raka, are you fool? Jesus said that's the same as murder. And he said that is going to destroy your relationship with me. But I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, but in my heart I have held resentment and bitterness and anger. That's going to destroy you. Somebody one time told me years ago that bitterness is like you taking poison and hoping the other person dies. Bitterness destroys you. And what Jesus is saying here is that unresolved anger in your heart is going to destroy you. And that's exactly the truth. I have seen so many people over the years get angry and bitter at a person or a situation. And that other person just kind of flows through life. But they become this depressed, discouraged, bitter person, and all the joy in Christ just automatically disappears. So you may have not murdered, but how's your heart? Stay there in Matthew five, because the next one says you should not commit adultery. Well, let's see what Jesus said about that. Look at verse 27. It's Matthew five. You have said that it was, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Once again, have not committed adultery? Have you lusted after a woman in your heart? See, that's adultery according to the Lord. That—that that is the sin of the flesh. That's a pretty straightforward thing. See, look at what Jesus is doing. He's not just saying, hey, guys, I want outside obedience. He goes, I want your heart. I mean, men, imagine going to your wife and saying, I've never committed adultery on you. But every night I get online and look at things I shouldn't. But don't worry, because God said don't commit adultery, so I'm cool. No. What an awful thing. And God says that you're supposed to hate that concept so much in verses 29 and 30 that you are willing to cut off the body parts to, to, to keep away from it. Now, does he literally mean that? Well, no, because here's the catch. I pluck out my eyes. Okay, I'm no longer going to lust after a woman. Okay, well, you know what? There's a lot of memories stored up in my brain, so I'm already going to fail there. I'm going to cut off my hands. I'm going to cut off my feet, so that way I can't do nope. What he's saying is you should hate sin so much. You should hate what that sin does that you'd be willing to do that. Now, you don't have to do that, but you should be willing to. To be quite honest, these last two, the murder and adultery, are ones that we kind of... I mean, we know they're wrong, but... But what? Anger not taking care of your heart is murder. Lusting after women is murder. Excuse me, is adultery. God is saying, this is the sin that it really is. And we need to kind of wake up and say, okay, Lord, this is destroying my relationship with you. This is going to destroy my relationship with my spouse. This is going to create problems in so many areas. And Lord, this is just going to be a physical sin that's going to destroy me and eat me up. And I have to be willing to hate this so much. I've shared this story with you many times before, and I'll pick up the pace because we're running out of time. Probably 10, 15 years ago, I had a young man come up to me and said he was struggling with pornography. Okay, so what is the issue? What's going on? Well what happened was he had a TV in his room and there had the HBO, it had the Cinemax, it had the Showtime and all that stuff, and he found himself watching things he shouldn't have watched. Okay, well this this is this is easy. Take the TV out of your room. He had an excuse for everything. Well I I mean, I use the TV for other stuff, too, so I don't really want to take it out of my room. My parents don't really want TV in some place, so i got to keep the TV. I said, okay, fine, just connect the HBO, the Showtime, the Cinema. Well, my grandma got it for me as a Christmas gift, and so it's one of those things I really don't want to... I said, come on, man, you're not serious. You don't want to. Because if you were wanted to, you'd cut off hands, feet, pluck out eyes. And that's what the Lord is saying, is you don't sit there and make excuses. The Lord is saying, if you really hate this, if you're really disgusted by this stuff, then, then don't do it. And take the steps that need to be taken to do that. And if that's something that you need prayer for, if that's something you need encouragement with, come talk to us afterwards. I'm not saying we got it all figured out. But we'd love to support you and encourage you and help you in that area, because it is a destroyer. It's an absolute destroyer in so many ways. We've got to pick up the pace here. We've got two more real quick. They get easier, trust me, I hope. Uh, Number eight, you shall not steal. Okay, that's right, pretty straightforward. You don't go to Walmart and take it, you pay for it, right? Okay, but we also just got to remember about the idea of stealing. What does it mean to steal? Stealing time at work by taking longer breaks. You know, stealing things here, stealing things there. Uh, You know, cheating on the taxes, fill in the blank. Those are all forms of stealing. And, and, you know, we just got to remember, okay, Lord, as a believer, I'm called to live purely in an impure world. So if it's a 15-minute break at work, it's 15 minutes. Well, everybody else takes 20. Well, you know what? I'm held to a different standard. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 16. Lying, gossip, half-truths. Just fascinates me how this has become accepted in the body of Christ. Do we realize that the Lord looks at gossip and lying on the same exact level as He looks at murder? Did you see that? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. It's the same level in the eyes of God. Here's one of my favorite phrases, and I don't know if he used it with you lately or not, but I heard a pastor say this. Uh, the pastor's name was um, David Platt. Give credit there. He says, We as believers are guilty of something called selective moral outrage. We get worked up at certain sins, but let other sins go. Adultery, that's awful. Murder, that's awful. Abortion, that's awful. Homosexuality, that's awful. Gossip, Oh, I struggle with that. It's awful. It's sin. Well, I know it's sin, but I mean, seriously, it's really the same sin? At, yeah. We get selectively upset at certain sins when really the Lord is saying, you know what? Think about this. God said, I'm going to choose 10 things, just 10 things. to set here, he chose to pick lying, false witness, gossipy stuff as one of those 10. That's how much the Lord hates it. But it's become so acceptable in the body of Christ. How about number 17? You should not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It's kind of interesting. When Paul listed the sin that got his attention in Romans, it was covetousness. Now, covetousness is kind of a secret sin, isn't it? Because we kind of maybe don't say things. We may drive by that house, we may drive by that car, we may drive by that camper, we may look at that TV and say, yeah, it's nice. But inside, it starts eating at you. And what happens is we really don't realize how bad covenants gets until you, and have you ever experienced this? And you guys are all perfect, so you won't admit it, but I'll admit it. That you start getting angry at the person for having. How did they get that? And that's that covetness. That's that anger. Their house is so nice. Their cars. Their job. Everything. And you just almost have this little daydream concept of what they are, and that becomes that covetness. You could covet someone else's job. You could covet someone else's life. You can covet somebody else's. Why I wish my wife acted like her. I wish my husband was like him that all becomes that covetousness and what happens is that you're no longer content with what you have and you're only focused on what somebody else has and that starts damaging relationships and so relationships with your own things but then also your relationship with the lord and your relationship with others so you know look at these 10 the first four are vertical you and the lord the next six are horizontal just think about you personally in your walk with christ What would happen if you said, Lord, no other gods, no other carved images, nothing takes my attention but you. I'm not taking your name in vain. I'm going to have that day of rest to really spend with you and to be used by you. How different would your walk with Christ be? Then how different would your relationship with others be? It's like, okay, I'm going to honor my mother and father. I'm going to not murder, not even not murder, not have those thoughts in my heart, not going to have those thoughts in my heart about adultery or stealing or false witness or covetousness. Maybe a completely different Christian, a completely different society it'd be a completely different everything and it's amazing how simply God just summed up these things in ten simple commandments that once again nine of them are repeated again in the New Testament to say this works it really honestly does work and how simple that is and we need to as a society as a body of Christ, as a country, as individuals to really stop and look at these and say Lord, am I doing this? Am I doing this on the outside and am I doing this on the inside? Boy, God help us to be those people that he's called us to be. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything? Yeah, Ryan. Did not know that. I was not raised Catholic. Did not know that. Anybody else have anything here? Kathy. Um, Yeah, uh, OMG, yeah. yeah. It's amazing how quickly that's just become in our society, little things like that. Um, You know, and and it's amazing how we we try to in in our house, and we're not perfect at this, You know, we try to say, okay, we're not even going to say, like, oh, my gosh, you know, or something like that. It's amazing how we have just kind of substituted God, gosh, hell, heck. You know, we could go right down the line. We've kind of created these little words that are really close to the other words, but they're not really the word. And, you know, and it's tough because you hear it all the time. You hear it on TV programs. You hear it when you go to work. You hear it all the time. and, And it becomes so ingrained into your head. And it's like, okay, Lord, this takes a conscious choice, a conscious decision to say, Lord, your name is so powerful and so amazing. I really want to be careful in how I use it. It's tough. It really is. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? righty Hey, let's pray for these. Lord, um, we want to be the society you've called us to be. We want to be the people you've called us to be. And, and Lord, you just simply said, love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, help us to do that. And then you said, love your neighbor as yourself, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to get past the selfishness of us and our family and, and just us, Lord. It's about you. Getting out there, being a light and a witness for you. Lord, we don't want to live these Ten Commandments just as some type of moral superiority. We want to live them for you and be the people you've called us to be in all ways and all things. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, if anybody wants to stick around for some prayer, feel free to pop on up here. We'll have a time of prayer. If not, we will catch you guys later. Have a good week and God bless.